Turn with me, please, if you don't mind, to Genesis chapter 35. We are continuing teaching verse by verse through the book of Genesis, and now we find ourselves in this really important chapter. Genesis 35 is a bit of a hinge chapter. Genesis 35 um, is the last chapter where the primary focus is really on Jacob himself. In the next chapter, we're going to find a focus on Esau and his descendants. And in chapter 37, the chapter after next week, we're going to find the focus goes now to Jacob's sons. And even though we see Jacob interacting from time to time, this truly is the last chapter where he is the primary character. And so the things that we find going on here in this chapter are really significant for us. We're going to talk today about how God is faithful. He demonstrates His faithfulness to us in our sojourn. Israel, as I've been trying to remind you along the way, probably knew some of these stories. They were orally handed down. But Moses didn't write these stories down for several hundred years, probably over 400 years. So the first scriptures that at least we know about that were written down were written after the Exodus, after Israel left Egypt. And that would not be for another 400 years after the events that we're reading about here in Genesis chapter 35. When Israel received this written word, they were sojourning. They were sojourning toward a rest that many of them would never fully realize. They were characterized often by idolatry, by fear, by faithlessness, by rebellion. Israel was a needy people, and Israel needed to see that they weren't alone. And as they looked back at the patriarchs, their forefathers, they saw themselves. And so the word for them became like a mirror where they could see their idolatry, fear, faithlessness, and rebellion. And the word today for us, thousands of years later, is like a mirror. We are much the same. We are sojourning. We are awaiting the coming of our rest, and even now we struggle with idolatry, fear, and faithlessness, and rebellion, and a host of other struggles. Genesis chapter 35 reminds us primarily of God's faithfulness. There are implications in this text for how we should be faithful for sure. But our faithfulness will always be contingent upon His faithfulness. The song we sang a bit ago reminded us that once we were lost in darkest night and thought we knew the way, but we would not have come to God on our own. He sought us and brought us to Himself. And so our salvation was initiated before the foundation of the world by the faithfulness of God. And then He enacted it and brought it to pass when He brought His Son and sent Him to be our substitute. And even today, this same God demonstrates His faithfulness to us. And this is the catalyst for and the motivation for our faithfulness. So we are called to faithful worship and we will see that in this text. But brothers and sisters, if we are not convinced of God's loyal love to us through which He sought us and through which He keeps us, we will constantly be struggling trying to find strength within to serve Him and it will always run thin. Moses wanted his people to know when he recorded these words under the inspiration of the Spirit 
that their God was faithful. And though he called them to faithful worship, their faithful worship was contingent upon his faithfulness and that would never, ever run dry. So as we read this text together, and we'll read it in its entirety, I want you to pay attention to how loyal God is to his covenant promises. And we'll take some time to examine it in detail. Let's read God's word together. Genesis chapter 35, the whole chapter. This is God's word. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came for Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went out from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau, and Jacob buried him. May God bless to us the reading of his word. 
I want to put in front of you now on the screen this simple thought. God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. That's what Genesis is really mostly about. God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. In fact, in many ways, that's what the entire Bible is about. From creation to fall to redemption to the finality of restoration that we await God is faithful to keep His covenant promises. He has, he has made a covenant with us. He has made promises to us. By and large, this is what we call a unilateral covenant. That term may be new to you, so let me explain it. God made a unilateral covenant with His people. That means that He was the one who made it, and He was the one who would keep it, whether we would be faithful or not. This is illustrated nowhere more clearly that in Genesis chapter 15, when God puts Abraham in sort of a vision state, takes some animals that Abraham had prepared, cuts them in two, and walks among the pieces. This ancient Near Eastern custom was to demonstrate that those who made the covenant would come under the same fate of those animals if they broke the terms of the covenant. But as Abraham observed God doing this, Abraham did not walk with God through the pieces. God himself walked through the pieces. And he was saying this. May the same fate that these animals met fall upon me if I don't keep my covenant promises to you. And what were those covenant promises? I'll make of you a great nation. And I'll give you a land in which that nation can dwell. And through that nation, I will build other nations. And I will bless them with redemptive grace. And if I don't keep those promises, may God die. And we know, if we know anything about theology, that that is impossible. God cannot die, and God always keeps his promises. He made a unilateral covenant with Abraham, and that's a good thing, because Abraham, by and large, was mixed. Mixed between faithfulness and faithlessness. His son Isaac, frankly, was worse And at times, Jacob was far worse, and his sons would be even worse than him. One of the most important things that we find as we move through the book of Genesis is that Moses never hid the warts of the patriarchs. He put them on full display. And this does nothing if it doesn't highlight to us the astounding grace of God. And that is good news to us. Because when we look within, we see so much bad, if we're being honest. We do not see things within us that commend us to God. And yet, He loves us anyway. And as we read Genesis, it's not just a chance for us to learn some cool narrative stories, but it's a chance for us to see the greatness of our faithful God and to rest in Him. So brothers and sisters, if we don't walk away from this text thankful and resting, we've missed the point. So I say to you at the outset, your God is faithful to keep His covenant promises. But I think this text reveals six things to us that sort of arise out of that knowledge. Because God is faithful to keep His covenant promises, we have to ask ourselves the question, so what? What does that mean for daily living? Well, I think there's six things that this text reveals. First of all, because God is faithful to keep His covenant promises, we are weaned from the powerful allure of our idols. Because he's faithful to keep his covenant promises, we can be weaned 
and the powerful allure of our idols. God says to Jacob here at the beginning of our text today, come to me. Come back to Bethel, the place where I made my special promises to you. Bethel means house of God. Come back to the place where I demonstrated myself to you and gave you my promises. Jacob responded to this in faith, and he went. But he says to them, before we go, all the idols that you're still hanging on to, you've got to let those go. I kind of wish we could capture the tone with which he spoke that. Was it one of irritation? Like, did God reveal to him, by the way, Jacob, some of your followers, some of your family, they still have idols. You need to go take care of this. Was he irritated when he talked to them? Was he pleading with them to say, look, we've journeyed with this God long enough. Hasn't he proven himself faithful enough and, and good enough to garner your affections? But with whatever tone Jacob approached his family and those that followed along with them, he calls them to give up their idols. And as far as we can tell here, they don't fight him. They give them up. Perhaps by this point they had become convinced. They were ready to relinquish the things that they were hanging on to. Back in chapter 31, when Jacob tells his wives that they're going to flee Paddan Aram and go back home, go back to Canaan and be with Jacob's family, we know from that text that Rachel steals her father's household gods. That's what Moses called them. We don't know exactly what was going on there. Had she come to the point where she was worshiping Yahweh but was hanging on to worship of other gods? A lot of scholars believe that those little idols that she took with her were sort of representative of the family inheritance, and then if she had possession of those, that she would get all of her father Laban's flocks and land and so forth. But whatever the case, she was hanging on to something else. Her confidence was in something else. It wasn't just the people of the periphery of Jacob's family. It was his dear wife. And perhaps his dear wife had seen her husband's own idolatry. This is what happens. The people that we live closest to, we we know what they love. We know what they trust. And perhaps Jacob had gotten to the point where, by and large, he was not characterized by idolatry, but characterized by confidence in the one true God. So that now when he speaks to his wife and to the rest of the family, that, that they're ready to give these things up because they're convinced that those things cannot satisfy. They can't save them. Why do we turn to idols? And and by that, I don't mean like totem poles. Like if you have me over for coffee to talk about Jesus, and I see a totem pole in your house, or some little statues made out of soapstone or something like that, we're going to have a talk. Like, Like that's a problem, okay? If I see you kneeling down and worshiping a little statue, that's not okay. We're generally little more sophisticated about than our idolatry than that like we don't worship wooden poles we don't worship little stones of idol but we worship other things we worship green paper we worship the opportunities that our jobs afford us to be adored we worship little bright screens we worship leisure we worship sex we worship lots of stuff We are sophisticated in our idolatry. Why do we turn to our idols? Well, like Rachel, 
The idols seem to offer us pleasure. An inheritance to Rachel, if that's why she took the gods, that would have offered her pleasure because she would have had more wealth. I think often it's even more subtle. We think our idols offer us safety. We think they offer us security. We think they will calm us. We think they will will remove the voices in our heads that tell us things aren't quite all right. You see, our idols masquerade as messiahs. And we believe them. We believe they can offer us pleasure. We believe they can give us safety. And so they become for us functional saviors. How do you know that your life is characterized by idolatry, that that you are allowing your idols to masquerade as Messiah to you? Well, you can ask yourselves a couple questions. First of all, where do you run when you don't feel very safe? Do you run to God? Do you run to His promises? Or do you run to stuff or things or even people? which in and of themselves may not be bad, but they are not ultimate. And though you know through experience, bitter experience, that those messiahs are just masquerading, that they're just functional saviors and they can't help you, yet you run back anyway. Where do you run whenever you're scared? When you're sad? Where do you turn when you're bored? One of the amazing and strange realities of living in Western culture where we have so much is that we're bored. Isn't that fascinating? My son was saying to me that he needs to have Netflix installed on his Nintendo 3DS. For those of you who have little kids, you probably know what this is. And I said to him, we have Netflix on both tablets, we have Netflix on both TVs and the laptop. Why do you need it on your 3DS, which, by the way, I don't intend to give him? He has thousands of things he can play with. He has a yard that he can run in where there's no scorpions or snakes. He can go in the woods where there's no poison ivy because it's been cleared. He can go to the pantry or to the refrigerator and have safe food. He can turn on the tap, and even though it doesn't taste very good, it's clean and potable. And yet, sometimes my child will say to me with a, horrified look on his face, Dad, I'm bored. And I look at him and I say, you have everything you could possibly conceive of. But as his dad, I'm like that. Where do I turn when I'm bored? Where we go whenever we're sad, angry, fearful, bored, and other things demonstrates to us what our functional saviors are. I'm not saying to you that 3DSs and Netflix and food and leisure time are bad. I'm not saying that. You need that. But I'm saying to you that those things cannot satisfy you. How can the allure of these idols be broken? Only as we see better things, better promises, more satisfying realities. You see, God is faithful to keep His covenant promises, and He knew that His people, His covenant people, were still being allured to their idols. And what did He do? He just gave them more promises. That that doesn't really make sense. You'd think He would just punish them. Like God has celestial x-ray vision. He can look into our hearts and he can see our idolatry. And you'd think he would just kind of wipe us out and say, enough, gone, be out of my presence. But he doesn't. When you're his son and you're his daughter, you know what he does when he sees your idolatry? 
He draws you to himself. He woos you with his affection. And it doesn't mean there'll never be consequences. It doesn't mean he'll never punish you. He must do that because you have to see how bitter your idolatry is. And yet he doesn't only punish. He doesn't only demonstrate to us the bitterness of the idolatry. He often woos us with his love. There was a man named Thomas Chalmers who was a preacher a long time ago. He preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Nobody would ever entitle a sermon like that now because you would immediately turn it off at the beginning. Some of you might have read the sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Chalmers' contention in this sermon is this, and I encourage you to write that down because I think some of you should read it this week. But Chalmers' contention in the sermon is this. The only way that your affections the things you feel, the things you desire, the only way that, that those things can be put down, bad affections, is if you see a higher good. The only way that your idols can be, can be put down is if you see something better. And therefore, that better thing expels the allure of the lesser things. That's what God's doing in this text. He is expelling their affections for lesser things, by calling them to come be with him. That's what God does in his faithfulness. Our God will not put up with competing worship. If you're his son, if you're his daughter, he won't put up with that. But one of the ways that he deals with that is by calling you to himself to find that he is good and satisfying. So God is faithful to keep his covenant promises, and because of this, we may be weaned from the powerful allure of our idols. Secondly, we can face trouble without... um, being paralyzed by anxiety. We live in a fallen world. Broken world, broken people. And if we're being honest, we are often crippled by our anxieties. I'd say it's generally speaking pretty universal. Now, there are some of you who are more crippled by those anxieties than others. There are some of you who are more often paralyzed by fear than maybe the one sitting next to you today. But to whatever degree, we are gripped very often by our anxieties. Why is that? Well, I think anxiety is the natural but sad result of God's creatures being separated from Him. You see this in the garden. Before the fall, what was it like for Adam and Eve? They had zero fear. I mean, even when the Creator showed up every day to hang out with them, They weren't afraid. If the Creator showed up today to walk with us, we would fall on our faces and tremble. Adam and Eve had no fear. Not only were they not afraid of God, they they weren't afraid of their environment. They weren't afraid of each other. Even to the point that they didn't even wear any clothes back then and there still wasn't any fear. The garden before the fall was a perfect place of zero fear. There's a book that R.C. Sproul wrote some time back for kids called The Lightlings. Do you guys have this book? A few of you do. I was talking to some friends last night about um, how there's so many more good resources now for us to help our kids than there were probably when our parents raised us. But Sproul has written a series of books for kids, and they're really, really good. They expose our kids to good theological and gospel truth. But the book called The Lightling, Sproul wrote, 
for his grandchildren, in fact, at the beginning of the book. Um, he dedicates it to them. And the story starts off with his grandpa telling a story to his kids, so it's very personal for him. And the basic gist of the story is that there's a king, and he's called the King of Light, and he makes a world. I know it's probably kind of hard to see, but I'll hold it up. And it's full of light and brightness, and his little creatures fellowship with him in perfection. But eventually there comes a time where they rebel against him, and the world starts to get dark. And one of the most gripping pictures, I hadn't looked through this in a while, I pulled it out last night, but I'll never forget this picture. Every time I see it, it's sort of scary. Um, It's filled with darkness, but there's all these creatures on the periphery, which I know it's hard to see because you're far away from me. There's some little green glaring eyes from something that they can't see in the shadows. And Sproul says on this page, it was awful living in the dreadful darkness all the time where the only light they ever saw was in barely lit shadows that danced in the forest. In fact, they couldn't tell the difference anymore between night and day. That's what our broken world is still like in many ways. Jesus is coming back. His light has already penetrated our darkness, and one day it will fully penetrate it to the point that there won't even be any more need for sun because the Lamb will be among us and He will be its lamp. I'm looking forward to that. But even still, because we await the final restoration where light will invade the darkness and all the recesses of the shadows and all the scary things will be taken away, that hasn't happened fully yet. There's lots of scary things out there which seem to threaten us. Anxiety is natural because we live in a fallen world and we're still not yet fully related to our Creator. But He's watching out for us. Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that in Him we move and live and have our being. In Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, we're reminded that Jesus Himself, our Savior, upholds the universe by the word of His power. In verse 5 of Genesis 35, Moses records that as they journeyed, as Jacob's family journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that those cities, the people in those cities, did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob didn't even realize what God was doing, but at every moment, every turn, every step of his sojourn, God was protecting him. And I say to you that because God is faithful to keep his covenant promises, even the worst of anxiety, like the legitimate stuff, not just the stuff you concoct in your head, but the real stuff, even those things God is superintending because he loves you, brother and sister. You don't see all the things he's doing. You would be overwhelmed if you saw the dangers around you, and yet he's watching out for you because he loves you. Jacob's family could not be wiped out. You know why? Because God made a promise that he would bless that family, and through that family he would bless the world, and therefore they were safe. Isaiah says to us in chapter 43 of his prophecy, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. You walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. That is who your God is. He watches over you. He loves you. And even the worst of dangers cannot overtake you. The third thing this text reveals to us is that because God is faithful to keep his covenant promises, we never have to doubt his posture toward us. 
In many ways, this is the central feature of this text. God brings Jacob back to Bethel, and he reconfirms the covenant once again. Why does he do that? Like, throughout Genesis, we just keep seeing him make the same promises again and again and again. Why does he do that? Well, to give you a very simple analogy, it's why you tell your wife or your husband or your kids or your friends frequently that you love them. Like, you don't just tell them the night of the engagement. You slip the ring on her finger while she's wearing her fancy clothes and you paid 200 bucks for dinner and, you know, like your friend is over in the bushes filming things with your, his iPhone so you can put it on Facebook later. Like, you don't just tell your fiancé you love her then one more time when she's wearing the white dress on wedding day, maybe at the end of the honeymoon and then each time a kid is born. Like, you don't do that because she will leave you. You tell her all the time. One of my favorite uh, musical artists is um, Andrew Peterson, some of you listen to Peterson from time to time, he just released a new album on Friday. Some of the most thoughtful lyrics that are out there today for God's people as they listen to music. Uh, I was reading an interview with Peterson this past week, and he said that every morning when he gets up, his wife is always up first, every morning when he gets up, she's making breakfast, and she comes and she gives him a hug. I thought that was really simple. Peterson, if you listen to him, helps unlock the, the emotions of the human heart and how to understand that in relationship to God. He's really profoundly gifted at that. And just simple recollections like that get to the heart of who we are as, as image bearers. We need relationship, and we need to know that we're safe. We need to know that we are accepted. What is God doing here in verses 9 to 15? He, he's reconfirming his promises. He reminds Jacob of his new name. It was a reminder that God had relentlessly pursued him despite his horrible idolatry. And that through hard lessons, through bitter experiences, Jacob had come to the point that he had kind of earned that new name because God had pursued him. He was one who strove after God. He was one who believed fundamentally that nothing else could really satisfy. But but really when it comes down to it, he hadn't earned that because God had conquered his heart. He had slayed the old Jacob and made a new man. And God brings him back to the land of promise that he had made to Isaac and to Abraham. And he says to Jacob, I'm going to give this to you and to your sons. And I'm going to continue to keep the promises. I'm going to unfold my promises to your offspring and to the whole world. Kings are going to come out of your loins. It's a pretty cool thing to hear. Why does God do that basically? Because Jacob needed to know that he was loved. Turn with me if you don't mind quickly to John chapter 1. We have seen in this text that Jacob comes back to Bethel. We've already seen Jacob in Bethel, and we see that God has made promises to him again and again. The first time that he came there, God demonstrated to him this thing like a ladder, showed it to him in a vision. There were angels going up and down that ladder, and it was demonstrating that that place was a place where God came to meet with man, that heaven met earth. But that was only temporary. It was only, if you will, a picture prophecy. John chapter 1 shows us the consummation of those promises that God initially made to Jacob and Bethel. John chapter 1 verse 1, John tells us what he's going to write about in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. He is God himself. But he didn't stay with the Father and leave us alone. He came to us. 
In verse 9, John says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And in verse 11, He came to His own. And in verse 14, The Word became flesh, He became a man, and dwelt among us. Literally, that means He tabernacled with us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At the end of the chapter, Jesus is talking to Nathanael and He says to him in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This one who was God, this one who came to His own, this one who tabernacled with His people, He was the one. He was where heaven met earth. And it met heaven and earth in a person not in a vision of a ladder in a place called Bethel, but universally Jesus has come to the earth offering Himself to peoples everywhere if they will but trust Him. The song we sang earlier speaks of God kissing a guilty world in love. Jacob saw that at Bethel. God was not going to leave this wicked world to to falter and fall apart. He would come to it. And Jesus is the fullest expression of that. What is Jacob receiving once again at Bethel in Genesis 35? A reminder that God would kiss a guilty world in love. And when would God consummate that promise? He would consummate that promise in Jesus. Jacob's greatest privilege was that he got to be with God. In Bethel, he got to be with God. And God demonstrated to Jacob that he wouldn't just be with Jacob, he would be with others who would trust him. What's going on at Bethel? It's curse reversal. The banishment from Eden had a number of facets to it. But the hardest part, the worst part of losing Eden was that Adam and Eve's experience of daily intimate communion with God was altered. He would not abandon them but they lost what they once had. And all of Adam and Eve's offspring, including Jacob, the entire human race would be born into sin. They would be separated from God. And as the offspring is spread over the earth, most reject Him. What can restore what was lost in paradise? How could paradise be found once again? Bethel is the unfolding of the promises And Jesus is the consummation of the promises. In fact, He will one day fully wrap up His promises and bring them to pass. And we know this because in Revelation chapter 21, when He comes and brings the new Jerusalem to earth, there won't even be a temple in it. You know why? Because His temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You don't need a place anymore because you have Jesus. And so what we find going on in Genesis chapter 35 is profound. We don't have to doubt God's posture toward us because He tells us. He loves us. Practically speaking, if I can exhort you for a moment, I not only want you to lean into this and to trust the God who never breaks His promises and is constantly willing to affirm His love to you, but you have to learn to do that for each other. God is verbal. The 66 books which make up the canon, our Bible, are nothing if they are not a consistent proclamation and affirmation of God's love and posture towards you. 
So I want you to rest in that. But you should be reflecting that toward each other. Spouses, children, friends, brothers and sisters in the faith. I have said this to you before and I will say it again. That if we are truly understanding the implications of God's favorable posture toward us in Christ, then we will be that way toward each other. We'll be characterized by forgiveness, by long-suffering, by affirming one another. God never leaves us to doubt his posture toward us. He never cold shoulders us. He never withdraws from us. He's never stoic toward us. And therefore, we can never be that way toward each other. Three more things. God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. And the fourth thing is we can trust him despite great sorrow and loss. As we've already read, Jacob's dear wife, Rachel, loses her life in these next verses. She was his favorite. She had given him Joseph, as we will learn starting in chapter 37, would be his favorite son, which, before we get there, I want to say to you, was not good, and we'll unpack that in a few weeks. But she was his favorite, for good or bad, and she loses her life here. Jacob, who loved her so much and frankly did not love Leah so much or his other slave wives, had to have been heartbroken. Moses does not give us necessarily an insight into Jacob's feelings here. But we could guess that he lost the best thing he had, or at least the best thing that he perceived that he had. God took it away from him. He had to have been confused. Now he was back in the land of promise and God took his best thing. But it wasn't all brokenness because he gave him something in its place, in her place. He gave him another son named Benjamin who would become his youngest son and a special son. There's loss here, but there's gain. There's sorrow, but there's joy. Jacob had lost other things and other people along the way, and now perhaps he loses the thing most dear to him. But he learns that he can trust God despite great sorrow and loss. Most of us have experienced that. Could have been position. Could have been favor. Could have been the loss of dream, something more insubstantial. Most of us have lost people. Moms, dads, spouses, and children. And perhaps nowhere are we more prone to question the goodness of God and the wisdom of God than whenever we've lost someone or something very dear to us. But Moses wrote these things down for Israel because they lost things. And he wrote them down for us because we've lost so much. But he's been faithful along the way and he will not forsake us. So I say to you today, if you have suffered great loss and is still gripping you, your God is good and you can trust him and he has not forsaken you. Psalm 34 verse 18 says to us, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If he is a good father who is loving enough to never cause us to doubt his favorable posture toward us, he knows when we fear, he knows when we are angry, he knows when we are broken in spirit, and he will not abandon us.
The fifth thing that we see in this text is that because God is faithful to keep his covenant promises, even the worst sins will not derail his providential purposes. We find Reuben making a terrible mistake in this text. Verse 22, he goes into his stepmom and has sexual relations with her. How do you how do you paint this in any favorable way? We're not surprised because we've seen the people of Jacob's family make terrible decisions before, even terrible sexual decisions. And every time you see it, you kind of scratch your head and say, how could you make such a massive mistake? And you might think that God would look down upon Jacob's family, who has once again just had the covenant reaffirmed to them and say, really? I mean, I'm, I've called you to myself. I've given you all you need. I'm, I'm wooing you away from your idols. And, and then you go and make this mistake? Like, like this isn't a small deal. We will see in the texts to come that Reuben has a changing character. God doesn't forget him, and God is faithful to change Reuben. But it does pose an important question. We talk about God's providence and his sovereignty over all things, but, but what about when people make really terrible mistakes? Does that mean that they're somehow outside of God's favor and they can never get back on track again? Does, do his plans have to get altered? Does he have to call an audible at sort of the proverbial line of scrimmage? with me quickly if you don't mind to Matthew chapter 1. One of our elders, James McLaughlin, who is now teaching in a seminary in Minneapolis, preached a really good sermon on Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ a number of years ago. You can probably find it on our website. But this is one of those times in the Bible where you tend to look at a text and think, well, I need to hurry through that and get to the good stuff. But if you do, you miss some really important truth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he records the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, two terrible idolaters. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, a deceiver. And Jacob, the father of Judah, an adulterer. And his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, who prostituted herself. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, who had been a prostitute. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, who had been a pagan. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, an adulterer. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, an adulteress. Whose genealogy is this? It was Jesus. And Matthew didn't sanitize it. But he shows to us that God even uses broken things to bring about his purposes. God uses sin sinlessly. That does not give you an excuse to sin, but it gives you hope that when you make terrible decisions, that God's plans for you are not derailed. So you can come to him because he is faithful and just to forgive, and he will not forsake you. The last thing that we see in this text is that God is faithful to keep his covenant promises and we need not fear death. That's kind of the big last one, isn't it? It's kind of anticlimactic here at the end. You find Isaac, the son of promise, and not a lot has been said about him in recent chapters, and then he dies. But Moses is faithful to say something I think pretty important. 
He was 180 years old, Isaac was, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. Old age in the Bible was often a sign that God showed favor to his people. Why? Well, at the end of the day, the last leg of this really difficult journey is death. We have to go through a veil of tears and fears to reach the final promises. Some of us, as far as we can tell, are a ways off from that. Some of us are a little closer than we once were. But even those of us who really trust God see death as a fearful thing. John Bunyan in his amazing work, Pilgrim's Progress, which he actually wrote from prison, talks about how Christian, this pilgrim who's sojourning toward the celestial city, reaches the final leg of his journey. And he's got to go through a river if he's going to get to the celestial city. And he says about Christian and his traveling companion, Hopeful, Now I further saw that betwixt them and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge to go over. The river was very deep. At the sight, therefore, of this river, the pilgrims were much stunned. But the men that went with them said, You must go through, or you cannot come at the gate. They then addressed themselves to the water, and entering, Christian began to sink, and crying out to his good friend Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters, the billows go over my head, all his waves go over me, Selah. Then said the other, Be of good cheer, my brother, I feel the bottom, and it is good. Then said Christian, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey, and with that a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian, so that he could not see before him. But then said Hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgot the text where it is said of the wicked. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in a muse a while, to whom also Hopeful added to this word, Be of good cheer, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian break out with a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Then they both took courage, and the enemy was after that, as still as a stone, until they were gone over. Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon, and so it followed, that the rest of the river was shallow. Now you must note, The celestial city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up that hill with ease because they had these two men, these traveling angels with them to lead them up by the arms. Also, the pilgrims had left their mortal garments behind them in the river, for though they went in with them, they came out without them. They therefore went up here with much agility and speed, though the foundation upon which the city was framed was higher than the clouds. They therefore went up through the regions of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they safely got over the river and had such glorious companions to attend them. It will be with much pain and sorrow that we will enter the kingdom. And death is the final passageway. But we need not fear it. Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 15, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We need not fear even the finality of death because God sees us and precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Jacob and his family were sojourning toward the land of promise, but the sojourn was hard and difficult. Israel, Moses' people, the offspring of Jacob, who would be called Israel, sojourned as well, and they needed the promises of God to be reconfirmed to them again and again. And I say to you, even though I've not said anything to you that you've never heard before today, I suppose, you need to know the promises of God who is faithful to keep his covenant with you. He will sustain you and he will keep you and you can trust him. So may we be faithful to worship him all the while knowing that this is because he is faithful to us. Let's pray.